Open your Bibles, beloved, to Isaiah 31. And um, go ahead and read this together. It's only nine verses. Um, so let's read it. And then we'll, uh, we'll look at this text together tonight. Isaiah writes, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet He is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back His words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, the helper will stumble and he who is helped will fall and they will all perish, they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over its prey and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, whenever we read your word as your people, as those who are the objects of your covenant love and your sovereign election, as those, Lord God, who have been brought from death into life, from, Father, abject sin, and clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and being conformed to Him day by day, Lord, your word to us are words of life. They're words we need to hear. They're words that we need to consider. They're words that we need to meditate upon. They're words that we need to think deeply about as they reveal to us who you are, who our God is, and not who some would make you to be. Father, as we look at this text tonight, as we look at these words from Isaiah, this fourth sermon now, Father, I pray that the message of Isaiah to Judah would be one that we would hear and apply to our own lives. Father, not that we are in the abject idolatry that Judah was in, but Lord, that you would guard and protect our hearts from such. That you would keep our way straight and that you would make us to love and esteem you above all others. So, Father, I pray that not only will we hear the words of Isaiah, but, Father, the, the very concepts and the thoughts and the important you know, details that Isaiah speaks to us would speak to us not only of the history of Judah, but of ourselves as your people. So please meet with us. Grant me the unction, I pray, of your spirit as I teach your word. Let it be nothing of me and everything of you so that your people might be benefited. And Father, prepare the hearts of your people to receive this word with gladness. And Father, with an earnest desire to understand and comprehend the truth. We love you and we praise you and we give you all glory, Lord. We, we love you because you loved us first. Because you set your love upon us when all we deserved was scorn. How gracious. How how incredibly gracious, kind, and merciful you are. So now be praised as we study your word, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this text that we're looking at tonight, beloved, is short and it's compact, right? It's like nine verses, right? But it packs a wallop. 
And what this is, is sort of, it's the fourth message, and really the last message, that Hezekiah, or that Isaiah is bringing to Hezekiah, and to his counselors, and to the people of Judah, regarding their spiritual and political condition. Regarding their, you know, sinful trust in Egypt, the threat that Assyria posed to them, and the sovereign plan of God behind it all. Like what God was doing, what He was at work in doing and bringing them to repentance. Most commentators actually see this fourth message as given relatively close to the time of Sennacherib's siege. In fact, most would say that it's given when Sennacherib is on the final approach to Jerusalem and his envoys are at the gate and it's clear to everybody that disaster is imminent. And I was thinking about that and I, I actually I agree with them. I agree with, you know, those commentators view on this for for several reasons first of all after this fourth message the theme of isaiah's series of sermons here is going to change it's going to change tremendously and chapters 32 and 33 are actually taken up with describing this future glorious reign of the lord in zion it's it's this beautiful panorama of the, the 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 how god rules you know over over zion over jerusalem heavenly jerusalem but second though there isn't you know, a great deal of new information here. The reasons for repentance that Isaiah gives are terse and they're to the point and, and the call to repentance is more intense and it's more forceful. Third thing is, is that in building up to his climax in these sermons, Isaiah reiterates here the two points that he's been pressing home. First of all, Egypt's help is worthless because Egypt is worthless. And in any case, Egypt's unnecessary because the Lord himself will fight for Zion and he'll overthrow the Assyrians, right? He'll do it because he is committed to his remnant in Judah. But then the second thing is this, is that while God has promised to be gracious to Judah for the sake of the remnant, God's grace must lead them to repent. And only then will they enjoy the blessings of God's grace, okay? So those two things are, are, are just, that's brought up to us again here in this text. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at this final message, first of all, by looking at Isaiah's final argument here for, 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 for Judah's repentance, okay? And I want you to notice as we're looking at this, like there's no room for mincing words anymore. Like the, the time for that's passed. Like there's no time to sit down and, hey, let's reason together and let me give you some ideas or whatever. Like this is not Isaiah counseling. This is Isaiah declaring, Okay. This is Isaiah declaring. In fact, I want you to notice he pronounces a woe upon Judah in the very first verse. Look at it. He says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they're many and in horsemen because they're very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. It's gotten to the point now where Isaiah is like, okay, gloves are off. Woe to you. All right. Woe to you. There's a curse on you now. There's a curse on you who have chosen to turn to Egypt and not to God. The question, of course, is why do they make this choice? What are the factors behind them making the choice to choose not to seek God, not to find God's counsel and everything, but instead to follow their own wisdom and to go down into Egypt? What, what is behind that? What, why, why make such a foolish decision? Well, there's several things that we're going to see as we progress through these first five verses. All right, I'll just give them to you really quickly. First of all, we're going to notice that they abandoned faith in God. Okay, that's number one. They abandoned their faith in God. Number two, they overlooked the truth about God. They overlooked the truth about God. And then third, they simply ignored common sense. They ignored common sense, okay? So those are the three things. First of all, I want you to see how they abandoned, really, any meaningful faith in Yahweh, okay? They abandoned any real meaningful faith in Yahweh. How did they do that? Well, here, here's how. They chose to go down to Egypt. And I want you to notice that Isaiah uses words, those words, deliberately. And what they are deliberately, how they're deliberately used is as a contrast to how going up to Jerusalem and, and seeking God's face in the temple was used of Judah's worship. Okay? Like no matter where you were in Judah, no matter where you were in Israel, when you went to the temple, from the north, south, east, or west, when you went to the temple to seek God, you were going up to seek God, right? That was the idea because Jerusalem was on 
a hilltop on a mountain, right? In contrast, he says, instead of going up like you should have, you've deliberately gone down. You've gone down to, to Egypt and, and you didn't seek the Lord. Instead, what are they doing? Well, they're relying on horses, right? They didn't look to the Holy One. And as a result, their trust was not in the power of God, but it was in human numbers and in human strength, right? It was in what seemed to be a feasible solution to their problem, right? It was, it, this act was not taken in faith at all. And, well, it was, but the faith was misplaced. The faith was in Egypt, right? Their faith was placed in Egypt. And I want you to take note of that word, word trust, right? That's a key word. Because that's the very essential of faith, isn't it? Like you can't have faith unless you trust in the object of your faith. Isn't that true? And so the, the, the issue here is they no longer trusted God. No matter how God had acted toward them in the past, no matter how they could trace his hand, no matter how they could trace his ways, no matter how many evidences of God's grace and his kindness and his mercy and his generosity that, 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 that could be placed before them, the bottom line was they came to a place where they simply lost their trust, their faith in the Lord. And that's the real question that Isaiah's faith. Look, do you trust God or don't you? Like if you don't trust God anymore, then just lose the name Judah. Right? Come up with something else. Change the name of your failed nation. Right? If, if, you, if you don't trust God, if you choose not to trust the Lord, then where are you going to place your faith? Upon what will you place your faith that can bear the weight of it? You think about that? You ever think about it like that? Like we're trusting in God for a lot of things, aren't we? As his people. We are trusting in God for some very, very weighty things. Chief amongst them is our salvation from the wrath that is coming. Correct? Right. Well, where are you going to put your faith? And where are you going to put it if it's not upon the Lord? What's going to bear the weight of that faith? Who or what can bear the weight of your need? That's a serious question. It's one worthy of our consideration. Right? What can sustain the weight of our faith? Whatever it is that we trust in for our rescue, our redemption, can it really bear the weight of our need? Beloved, only God can. And faith and hope in something lesser than Almighty God, less than His promises and His truth, is utterly worthless. It's worthless. Now, Judah needed to hear this repeatedly. I fear sometimes we do too. You know? Like we need to hear this over and over again, right? I mean, that, for instance, is why it's so important. It's why we stress so often how important it is, vitally important, that we get the gospel right, right? If our trust is in any part placed upon ourselves, that is a worthless foundation. It will crumble. It will blow up. It will fall apart. It will be like the bulge in the wall that we talked about last week or the week before, I can't remember, that falls in suddenly. It just, it, it can't bear the weight. To think that you're wiser than God, is a sure path to destruction. It's like saying, I want to get wrecked and I don't want to pass go or collect $200. I just want to get wrecked. I want to get destroyed. Those in Judah who thought they were wiser than God were about to learn otherwise, right? And the reason they thought they were wiser is because they overlooked the truth about God. Look at verse 2. And yet, speaking of God, and yet He is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. You could actually translate the beginning of this verse as, yet he too is wise. In other words, the idea is, you think you're wise. You're not. But as wise as you think you are, yet he too is wise. That's, that really gives a better sense of what Isaiah is saying here. Like They thought that they were wise, but God's wiser still. In every situation, he is. In every situation, the Lord is wise. He knows what he's doing. And, 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 and it's all according to his will. He brings his purposes to pass. If disaster threatens, he's the one who's bringing it. He's the one who's behind it. He's the real force to be reckoned with. And here's the thing that Isaiah says, which, honestly, for those recalcitrant and hard-hearted in Judah who were refusing to hear what Isaiah was saying, this should have caused great fear in their hearts. He says, 
He is a God who does not call back His words. In other words, He never contradicts. He never revises. He never adjusts or amends what He says. He's never in a position where He's like, oh, I didn't think of that contingency. Let me see. Hold on now. I didn't actually mean what I said. That's not who God is. And what that really is when he says this, it's a not so subtle shot at the Egyptians, right? Who habitually and regularly abandoned their word. God's not going to. In fact, what he's getting at is this, and he's been building up to this, right? He's saying, look, in both his warnings and his promises, Yahweh doesn't change. His promises, you can take them to the bank, but you can also take his warnings to the bank as well. And the world, especially Judah, to whom he had revealed himself repeatedly, is under his rule and is morally accountable to him. And the message that he gives here is that, look, Judah and Egypt, like they're not going to escape responsibility here. Both those who pursue evil and sin and those who help them in their rebellion will both be held accountable. That's what God is saying here. Now, I think about that when I think about our modern church. And I think you'll track with me on this. I think about the way that so many Christian pastors and churches have abandoned the gospel for the false promises, say, of critical race theory, right? Or for the social gospel. Or for a soft universalism, you know, that's, there's, there's salvation outside of Christ. The whole Rob Bell, love wins garbage, right? Or an Americanized, you know, gospel. Giving fallen men and women what they want rather than the truth. That doesn't save anybody. It doesn't get the people in the churches that are listening to this off the hook. And it certainly doesn't exonerate those, quote, Christian pastors, unquote. Just simply ignoring the truth about, like, there are a lot of people who like to bury their head in the sand and just ignore the truth about God. They just want to ignore it. You can do that. And there are people that will encourage you in it, right? But both will be led to everlasting destruction as a result. Judah was overlooking the truth about God. That He's the sovereign Lord, that His word is to be known and obeyed, that His people are to seek Him. And when they look for help in another place, those substitutes for God will come under condemnation as much as those who sought them. They tried to Ignore the truth about God. Then in verse 3, Isaiah hammers at home by showing Judah that they just have no sense. Look at it. This is so, man, so direct. He says the Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, the helper will stumble and he who is help will fall and they will all perish together. The Egyptians are man. That's the Hebrew word Adam, right? What do we know about man? Man is created and dependent, isn't he? He has no life in himself. He has no power in himself. He has no vitality in himself. He is an utterly dependent being. Right? The Egyptians are man and not God. The Hebrew word there is El. It's the word that describes the exaltedness of God and all of His majesty and His power and His self-existence and His might and His transcendence and His irresistibility. In his purpose. He contrasts, you know, human means, the flesh, with the, the spirit, right? And the contrast there is, is evident, right? The flesh is that which is weak and transient and, and needs life, right? And the, and the spirit is that which is eternal and possesses life and communicates life. Human beings can't contend with God and win. Surely it was obvious where Judah should place their trust. 
There's only one Savior. There's only one true, effective, and powerful Savior. And it's not Egypt. They were false and worthless. And then I want you to see this because this is really cool. Isaiah uses these two complementary images now in verses 4 and 5 to describe Yahweh's jealousy for His people. To describe His love for His own. It's so cool, right? He says, For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he's not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill, like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. This is so great. In the first image, right? God's compared to a lion, to a young lion that has taken down his prey and he refuses to be scared off of it, right? I don't know if you watch like, um, you know, nature clips, that kind of stuff. Like I love watching nature clips and especially those that involve like big cats. You know, I don't know why. I'm just, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of big cats, right? And, 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 and this description is true. Like when you see like a big cat take something down, like it takes something Really big and scary, like huge, to drive that off, to drive that cat off, right? They don't go anywhere. That's theirs, right? That's, and they're not, they don't run away. And the picture that Isaiah has here is of, here's this lion that's taken down its prey. He refuses to be scared off of it, not by the shouting or the noise of a band of shepherds that's pointing to Egypt. Really not by anything. Instead, the lion's undaunted. He's unconcerned. He's not leaving what is rightfully his. What he's taken possession of, right? Now, first, <laughs> it might seem a little, you know, disconcerting to Judah that they're being described in this illustration as the prey, right? That's not usually a good place to be in. But that's, that's not the point. The point is not that they're the prey. The point is, it's, it, it's the strength and the determination with which the lion stands guard over what's its own. That, that, that is the point, right? God, God will not let his people go. But then the second image of hovering birds protecting a nest. The emphasis there now is on the Lord's strength to, to protect, that is to defend and to shield his people, to deliver them from their enemies and from their trouble, from their sin and from their guilt, right? To, to spare them. That is to, that when he brings the judgment to pass over them. That's a familiar theme, right? And, and to rescue, that is to deliver and provide escape for his people. The point is this, is that what these two pictures of verses 4 and 5 amount to is a promise that the Lord himself will fight for and he will protect Jerusalem. And that promise stood. That promise stood even up till when Sennacherib's envoys were finally at the gate and Hezekiah had at last the wisdom and the humility to repent and claim that promise from God. And it's that very repentance for which Isaiah calls here. Look at it. Powerfully he commands him in verse 6. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. Now I want you to take note of this initial statement, the language of it. This is important. He says, turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted. Now when he uses that phrase, people, to speak of the nation of Israel, he's drawing a dividing line. He's drawn a dividing line between those who are going to hear this message and remain unmoved and those who are going to hear this message and respond with faith and with repentance. I want you to notice too that those two words, deeply revolted, because what those two words speak of in the Hebrew, it speaks of profound and extreme defection of apostasy a withdrawal from a relationship. In other words, Isaiah is saying that really here's the issue. The idolatry that is in Judah is really sort of the ultimate outward sign 
of rebellion against God. Idolatry had long taken root in Judah before the alliance with Egypt was even conceived. In fact, we might say that it was the cancer that lay at the root of all the nation's ills, for it showed that the Lord no longer had His people's undivided loyalty. You see? Most times we think of an idol as like a statue of wood or stone or metal that's worshipped by pagan people overseas, right? All those peeps. Those people are into that. The concept of idolatry is much broader. It's much broader and it's, it's far more personal than that. It's far more personal than that. An idol is anything apart from God that any of us depends on to be happy or fulfilled or secure. That's what an idol is. I'm going to say that again. An idol is anything apart from God that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, or secure. That can be a relationship. That can be, you know, stocks and bonds. That can be my position. That can be, you know, my notoriety. That can be whatever. It's anything that we depend upon to be happy or fulfilled or secure. In in biblical terms, it's something other than God that we set our heart on, that motivates us, that masters and rules us, or that we trust fear, or serve. That's what idolatry is. It's something we love and pursue more than God. That's the essence of idolatry, and that was the defining sin of Israel, for which they'd already been wiped out. And it was the sin in Judah from which they must repent. Okay? Now, I want you to follow with me, because this is very important, okay? Repentance on the part of Judah... And it really is true of us too. Repentance on the part of Judah required more than simply giving up this sin or that sin. I'm just going to give up this sin over here. I'm going to give up that sin over there, whatever. It includes that, of course, but it is far deeper, okay? When Isaiah mentions idolatry, he's getting to the root of their sin, right? So often we deal with the, the symptoms of our sin rather than the root of them. It's deeper. You've got to get to the root. John MacArthur says this. He says, To repent means more than regret or sorrow. It means to turn around, to change a direction, to change the mind and the will. It doesn't denote just any change, but always a change from the wrong to the right, away from sin in all of its forms, and to righteousness. Repentance involves sorrow for sin, but sorrow that leads to a change of thinking, desire, and conduct of life. True repentance required a complete transformation driven by grace. Okay, It's not something you can do on your own. Empowered by grace of Judah's heart and mind and stance toward God. It required them to see that all their ills societally, all their problems, really, they all all boiled down to idolatry and that they were idolaters. And they needed to return to the one whom they had so deeply offended. So all their gods had to go. None could be spared if they were to enjoy the fullness of God's salvation and blessing. There's not a middle ground here, right? That's the point, right? It's not enough to like, well, I'll just kill a few of the idols in my life and maybe God will be happy with that. No. No. I mean, think about that. Like, let's say you're a married man. You're having an affair with like seven women. You're like, well, I'm just going to get rid of four of those. My wife will be happy. That's over half. Seriously, that's how foolish that is. We laugh at that because it seems so outlandish, right? But it's a very great temptation with our idols in our lives, isn't it? There's no middle ground. They need to look to the Holy One of Israel exclusively. They need to look to Him. And then, only then, would they see the triumph of the Lord. Look how Isaiah closes this message. This is so great. He says, And the Assyrian shall fall by the sword, not of man, and a sword not of man shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword. And his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror. And his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Right? Note that repeated saying, a sword, not of man. Right? A sword, not of man. In other words, the people of Judah won't even have to fight. We know that comes true. The the people of Judah aren't even going to have to fight. The Lord God will miraculously intervene 
and they will receive the promised salvation that Isaiah has been telling them. You're going to be saved from, from Sennacherib and Assyria. They're going to receive it as a gift. As a gift from the hands of the gracious God. It's really a picture, isn't it? Of our redemption in Christ. I mean, he did all the fighting, did he? What fighting did we do? What part did we have in the great battle? How did we help out Christus Victor? How did we do that exactly? How did we help our great warrior? (laughs) We weren't even shield bearers, man. We didn't do anything. He did the fighting. He conquered Satan and sin and hell and death by his mighty victory on the cross and through his resurrection. And the benefit of his victory, the blessings of his victory are ours how? By faith. It's the way that God always does it, isn't it? Remember when, when Moses was at the Red Sea with the nation of Israel and they're all like, oh, what are we going to do? He's like, shh. Really what he says is shut up. Be quiet and see the salvation of the Lord. Just, right? Be quiet. You have no part in this. There's nothing you're going to do. Put away your palm fronds, ladies. Going like this is going to split the water. God's got it. Right? Really, it's it's remarkable when we think about it. What 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 recipients of incredible grace we are. Like God does Christ does all the fighting, all the winning, all the redeeming, all the rescuing, all of it. And we get the blessing. We share in his inheritance. That he earned. It's great. Again, I want you to notice this, though. As we've seen so often in Isaiah, this vision goes beyond, you know, the immediate horizon. Like, what seems to be in view here, right, is, is not only the defeat of Assyria and its attempt to conquer Judah, but there's more stuff here. It really is a picture of the final collapse and destruction that occurred, uh, didn't occur until 612 B.C., with the fall of Nineveh to the Babylonians. And the reason I say that is because Isaiah describes here forced labor, the passing away of the rock of Assyria, which was its military power, you know, and, and as evidenced by the widespread defection and desertion of military commanders from the standard, from the flag of Assyria, which in fact happened in the Battle of Nineveh. They just like took off and left their troops. And even more... Notice that the fire of the Lord's presence in Zion is no longer viewed as the fire of His judgment, right? The aerial of chapter 29, right? But it's the fire of His saving presence and His his refining nature. That future glorious reign of the Lord in Zion, that's that's going to be explicitly taken up in the next two chapters, 32 and 33, that immediately follow, but... Really, God's gracious deliverance of His people from Sennacherib when they cried out to Him is just a foretaste of something that's far greater, isn't it? And far more glorious, which the Lord has in store for everyone who repents and believes in Christ for salvation. Right? As it's written, what? There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. As it's written, what eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. An inheritance, what? That is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I strung together Romans 10, um, 12 and 13, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, and 1 Peter um, 4 and 5. Chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Here's the point. Come away from this and God has pledged himself to the full and the final salvation of his people, hasn't he? Hasn't he? And I'm reminded of the words in Numbers 23, 19, you know, where Balaam, you know, they're trying to cajole Balaam into cursing the people of God and he can't. And he makes this statement, God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? By divine methods and means, God will fulfill his promise to his people in whatever way he deems fit. And that ought to fill us with awe. 
And it ought to fill us with wonder. And it ought to fill us with a sense of all is well. Right? All is well. And it it should give us this great sense of security knowing that God doesn't fail. He can't fail to keep His covenant promises to those whom He has foreknown. Just like we've been seeing in Romans, right? So, just a few thoughts to close with. Uh, And then, you know, whatever y'all you want to say. First, I just want to say this. We've got to be careful of the default tendency that is in all fallen human, human beings to look at ourselves and what seems wise to us or to other substitutes and not look first to the Lord of glory. Amen? We need to be careful. We sometimes judge situations. I'm guilty of it. You know, just on a surface level. Just look at it like, okay, on the surface level and really fail to consider the purposes of God in it, right? It's just part and parcel of our sinful nature. So we need to guard against the tendency to silence or ignore the plain teaching of Scripture to silence or ignore the plain teaching of Scripture in order to pursue a course of action or some desire that we know, that we know, is contrary to the Lord's will. Right? We can't be like those petulant children. I was one of those. I can remember deliberately not seeking counsel from my parents on something because I knew the answer that they would give would be the opposite of what I wanted to hear. Right? Right? We can't do that with the Lord. Okay? We've got to be continually keeping our hearts and our minds tethered to the Lord through His Word, continually pursuing, and I want to emphasize this, a vibrant, real, and personal, personal communion with Him. When he talks about looking to the Lord and consulting the Lord, when Isaiah does, those are both personal and relational things, aren't they? Aren't they? We've got to guard ourselves against the temptation to reduce our faith to simply being just adhering to a set of principles minus a personal commitment to God as His people. Right? We've got to guard against the thought that God's Word is just good advice only and not binding truth. I don't think it's any coincidence that the first psalm recorded in the book of Psalms says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows. And the idea there is knows personally the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Second thing that stands out to me in this text is God's jealousy for His people. Man, God is jealous for those who are His own and praise God that He is. Isn't that true? I'm glad He is. God doesn't allow His people to go astray from Him, you know, and, and from His ways forever. He doesn't. He always brings them back. And I love the imagery. The imagery of a lion possessing his prey or birds defending a nest displays the jealousy for His people who are His own possession. And that ought to give great comfort to our heart as Christians. How many of you can testify that even after being brought to faith in Christ, you stumbled, you went astray, and God in His jealousy hunted you down like a lion, took hold of you as His prey, and brought you back. He does. He does that. I love what John Blanchard writes about this. He said, this is, this is really good. I want you to listen to this. I'll go slow because it is so good. He said, God was jealous for your salvation as He brought the gospel to you in one way and another, through one person and another, through one means and another, until finally He broke through in the power of the Holy Spirit and brought you to living faith. What is more, He is jealous for you now. Jealous for your spiritual welfare. Jealous for you in every temptation and trial. Jealous lest you should be robbed by covetousness, compromise, worldliness, prayerlessness, or disobedience in any shape or form. He is jealous that you should have that fullness of blessing, those riches of grace 
that he longs to bestow upon every one of you his people. That is spot on. Right? Third thought. Repentance is a real necessary part of our relationship and our walk with the Lord. And not just repentance at the initial juncture of salvation, right? Well, I'm repenting now and I'm believing and and then leave repentance behind, right? Repentance isn't a one-time thing. It's vital for sanctification. It's vital. It's an ongoing necessity if we're going to grow in Christ. Look, when you repent and you believe in Jesus, it doesn't mean that all of your thinking about God is in an instant immediately sound, does it? Does it? No, you need your mind renewed continually. You need to... Learn who God really is, right? Not, not the God that you perceive through your sin-induced haze, but who God really is. And that requires repentance daily of, of our thoughts and of our you know, ideas and of our perceptions that are below the true God of Scripture, right? Our emotions aren't instantaneously purified at the moment of salvation. We need to repent. Right? Our will is not instantaneously subdued in every way. Right? We need repentance continually. When, when, Ma- when Martin, Luther said, Martin Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. And what he meant that was turning from sin and trusting in Christ and learning of God isn't a one-time inaugural experience. It's the daily substance of Christianity. Right? We never get to a point where well, I don't need to learn anything. I got it down, right? If you're married, how'd that work out in your marriage? Not well, right? That continual transformation we desperately need. It's essential to our walk with Christ. In fact, I want you to think about this. Think about, you know, Jesus is jealous for his people, right? He loves his people. You read Revelation, right? Immediately, what do we find at the beginning of Revelation? We find letters to seven different churches, right? And what do we find as a repeated theme in all those letters to those seven different churches in Asia Minor? What do we hear? Repent, repeatedly. The word repent, don't we? Don't we hear that? Right? I mean, think, I'll just read a few to you. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from which you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Anybody know what church that was? Ephesus. Right on. Then we got Pergamum. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of of the Nicolaitans. Therefore what? Repent. Thyatira, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw in her sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they, what? Repent of their works. To Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. You're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And then, of course, the ever-famous Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Let me read that again. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And that reproof and discipline is to lead to what? Repentance. So be zealous and repent. An ear to hear and a heart to repent are indispensable to our relationship and our walk with the Lord, right? Then here's the last thing. Very short. This is yet another encouragement from Isaiah that God will indeed triumph over all of his adversaries for the sake of his glory and for the good of his people, isn't it? Every victory of God that we see in Scripture, beloved, every one of them, whether it's, you know, 
at the Red Sea, over Pharaoh, or over Sennacherib by the sword of God, or Christ's victory over the power of Satan and sin and the wrath of hell on the cross, or his conquering of death through his resurrection, it all points to his ultimate triumph and exaltation as Lord, doesn't it? And our enjoyment of him as Lord. That's why the writer of Hebrews exhorts us with these words. This last thing I'll say. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. May that be true of all of us. Got a couple minutes, thoughts, comments, anything, questions? So I was thinking that a lot of this sounds a lot like how Second Peter, he says, look, I'm, I'm trying to give you this as a reminder. Mm. And he talks about how you know, there's going to be scoffers. There are going to be those who abandon the truth. Absolutely. This is a, it was a huge warning. And a, like he said, a reminder um, to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the Holy Prophet and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your, uh, through your apostles. And he goes on to just talk about how he was going to have victory over um, the his enemies and, and the scoffers. Yeah, absolutely. And here's the thing too, man. Like, you know, these warning passages are, they're necessary passages in Scripture, right? I mean, sometimes people hear these warning passages, right? And they kind of freak out. And we're going to talk about one on Sunday. They kind of freak out a little bit. Like, you know, I'm going to lose my salvation. I'm going to lose my salvation. Well, if you hear those warnings and they fall de- on deaf ears, then you really weren't saved to begin with, Right? God has methods and means. And one of the methods by which God ensures the ultimate faithfulness of His people and their enjoyment of reward is by the response of those indwelt by the Holy Spirit to the warnings that the Holy Spirit writes in the Word of God. Those warnings, you know, they preserve you when you hear and you heed, you know, by the unction of the Spirit of God. Those warnings preserve you. Right. And they're also meant to like really examine yourself. Like if you can hear those warning passages and you just blow them off, that ought to be a real warning sign to you immediately. Like, man, your heart is not in a good place. If you can just ignore that, be careful, you know, be careful. Anybody else? Um, the, the church, uh, the seven I think there are elements of all those churches in our modern church. I don't think, you know, I don't think it's like, when I, when I preach through Revelation, like, I don't see these as like epochs in church history. Like in this part of church history is this. this th- these are representative of, of really all the churches, right? I mean, um, there are those that are faithful like Philadelphia. And then there are ones that are not. And, and I, think, um, I think there are elements, especially in the American church, of all of these churches. I think probably the one that sticks out the most would be um, the... Uh, hold on, let me look at it real quick. I want to make sure I get the right ones. Um, I say, well, actually, probably the three that I would meld together would be Pergamum, Thyatira, and uh, Laodicea. That's what I would say. I think that those are... like Because, you know, in, in, in Pergamum, it's all about the whole um, sexual immorality and... Those that hold the teaching of Balaam and, and all that, the Nicolaitans, kind of like the idea there is of um, antinomianism, just like, you know, I have a faith that doesn't produce actual works. And then in Thyatira, it's, you know, the false teaching that is so rampant, right? And then, of course, in Laodicea, it's this um, lukewarmness, but also this uh, obsession with, you know, how rich and prospered and needing of nothing that I am, when in reality, the opposite is true. That's just my viewpoint. I'm not, it's not like, you know. Yeah, no. All right, let's pray. And then we'll uh, split up into groups and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, 
We thank you for opening our eyes to behold your glory in your word. To see you, Father, as you are, and to be reminded, Father, of who we are. You alone are self-existent. You alone are omniscient and omnipotent. You alone are the sovereign God. You alone. You alone reign. And Father, we are needy and dependent people. And I am grateful, Father, for your great grace to a needy and dependent people like us. You have demonstrated such great kindness and faithfulness to us. And I pray that, Father, that would stir within us a greater and more just a solid faith in You. It doesn't waver. It's not tossed about by situations or or circumstances or winds of false doctrine. But Lord, that, that, that stands fast in You. I thank You for how this text, an ancient text, remarkable, a text that is nearly 3,000 years old because it's been breathed out by You is perfectly applicable for Your people in this day. It's really tremendous. So thank You for just Your kindness, God. Thank You for meeting with us. And I pray that You just sink these words that we've heard and considered deep into our hearts and that, Lord God, You would bring forth from them real fruit in our lives and our families, evidenced in the way that we, um, as we live and we walk and we deal with other people and we speak of You, all of it. Father, let these, these words bear good fruit and good soil, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.